Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of That Sums It All Up with your host me, Alfie Steiner. Today's show, we've got a brilliant one lined up. We're just about recovered from Monday's riveting deadline day. And with me to delve deeper into Arsenal's transfer window and a whole lot more, I'm delighted to welcome Football London's Arsenal reporter, Kaya Kainak, onto the show. Good afternoon, Kaya. It's great to speak to you. How are you? I'm good, mate. Thank you for having me on. Very glad to be here. Yeah, it's been a for for the the actual little amount that ended up happening, it's been quite a busy uh, couple of couple of days. So it's nice to nice to come come on here and, and talk about everything. You've opened the conversation in a really good way there because I think only at Arsenal would there be such lack of kind of incoming transfer activity, and yet we've ended up sort of dominating the whole transfer window <laughs> conversation in a weird way uh, because of what's been going on, but. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's really really great to have you on the show today, and we're gonna we're gonna rack your brains. I'm sure you're just about fed up with uh, <laughs> going through all the transfer business and all of that no, sort of stuff. Okay. But yeah, we're gonna have a look at, at what's been going on. And I think, I mean, to be honest, there's only one place that will start in in a few minutes uh, on the Pierre Emerick Aubameyang saga. Yeah, just for our listeners. Kaya and I actually went to the same school and um, Kaya is obviously now, I mean, do you want to tell us just a bit about what you do at the moment in as much or in as little detail as, as you want to just uh, for your listeners? Yeah. Um, so obviously we went to the same school, UCS in uh, London for anyone who doesn't know. And from there I went on to do history at York, um, then got a degree in a, a master's degree in journalism from City. If anyone's sort of wanting to follow that pathway, that's a really good pathway to follow. And you get really good training in broadcast journalism, all that kind of stuff, which is fantastic. And from then on, uh, just writing article after article after article, applying, applying, applying. Mm-hmm. And then thankfully, I got this job, uh, which is covering Arsenal for uh, Football.London, which is an amazing opportunity. I get to do press conferences with Arteta, which is fantastic. Uh, get to go games, cover them, the occasional transfer story. Um, I'm not, I'm not myself the hugest fan of transfers, but I know a lot of people are. So try to mm-hmm. try to serve the audience in that front. But yeah, it's it's an incredible opportunity and it's a great piece of work. Like I love, I love doing it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, it's 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 with Arsenal. There's always a lot to cover. Um, it never never really never really a quiet day, as you as you quite eloquently said there. Despite the fact that there wasn't anything that actually happened, uh, Arsenal still dominates the news agenda. So there's always stuff going on. And uh, personally, that's what that's why I, I love the job. It just sort of keeps me busy. Um, and yeah, really really enjoy it. Yeah, no, that's really good to hear. I mean, we we spoke on the podcast, um, not we on the podcast. I'm using the uh, the royal we there to. James Goldman from the Metro and and he was talking about you know he's he's maybe been in the in the business for quite a long time now and and he said that he's found you know the the evolution of his like Arsenal fandom and then aligning it with work and I remember when we spoke on the phone I think about a month ago I sort of asked you how how do you find your sort of line of work you know coexisting with being a big Arsenal fan because I guess in a way, on the one hand, you can say, well, it's it's the club that I love and it's a passion of mine. And so the work is very enjoyable. But I wonder if, I mean, yeah, where are you at? Do you do you find it easy or is it is it tough sometimes? 
So for me, the the emotional engagement that I have with Arsenal still hasn't gone. It's uh, it's yeah, it's one of those huge things. It was just uh, since I've been a kid. As long as I can remember, I've had that connection. And I'm sure you and all your listeners have to whatever club they support. Assuming it's Arsenal, given this is an Arsenal podcast, uh, <laughs> I don't imagine there's many Spurs fans listening. Uh, I hope there's not at least. No, but, um, no, no. I hope not too. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. It, for me, it's exactly the same. I, I still feel as gutted uh, when we lose I still feel as elated when we win when we score goals it's incredible mm. and I think maybe just having a bit more of an inside knowledge as to what's actually going on allows mm. me to maybe comprehend um, some things uh, maybe with a bit more information but I think that I'm as as far as it goes to connecting with the club, it doesn't really uh, change. The only difference is I can't shout and swear at the players in the in the press box. But that's that's I think that's a, a minor sacrifice to make. And yeah, I got to go to a game. Uh, I think it was the Newcastle game at home as a fan, and yeah, got a lot of uh, shouting and swearing out in that game, <laughs> just to just to sort of get my fix. And yeah, the 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 passion that I have for Arsenal, passion that I have for football journalism, even though it is my job, uh, still hasn't gone away. I don't think I'd be able to. Uh, work as hard as I do if it wasn't for um, the passion I've got for this job. Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's lovely to hear. I think as a as a big Arsenal fan, and obviously you you work to cover the club and sort of inform all of us about what's going on and try as hard as you can to update us and everything that's going on. So um, yeah, it's really nice to hear that there's that balance to be had because I think it can be difficult. And I think just like we'll move the conversation onto um, the transfer window and thinking about. You know, I think you're you're quite right in pointing out that quite a few journalists or at least other podcasters and reporters, I think a lot of them don't necessarily love the uh, transfer win- transfer windows because it kind of encourages quite a lot of, uh, I don't know, stories for stories sake or or rather, you know, the your actual work is is less about, you know, giving your opinions and sharing sort of uh or engaging in, in interesting topic conversations. It's more just about like the players and the movement and the money and that kind of thing. But I mean, I guess with this transfer window from Arsenal, it's kind of in a way, I guess why I've kind of enjoyed it is because it, it has left us with a lot of like conversation to be had. And it's not been so, I mean, of course there's, there's on, on the one hand, you know, oh, when's Alexandre Isak coming in or like Duzan Vlahovic, like all these links and everyone's keeping up with them and tracking Alexandre Isak around London and Selfridges and all the rest of it. But at the same time, I think I I quite like engaging with the, uh, you know, the the consequences of of this window and, and not necessarily just thinking about the uh, the players, but more just what it means for the club and, you know, the direction and the project. And I think that's a that's a nice way to try and engage in the transfer window. So, I mean, yeah, let's let's start with uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang then because he's just been doing his media duties at, at Barcelona this morning, I think. There's quite a lot to to, to take on from from this kind of, this, this situation. Where, where do you stand on it? Like, just like, where's your first sort of, yeah, feeling about the whole thing? So for me, one of the things I dislike the most about the transfer window is that uh, it is it makes everything binary. So everything's either fantastic or it's the worst thing in the world. And uh, that's just the nature of social media. And that's just the nature, I think, of the modern news cycle in general. And that could be a whole nother podcast for a whole nother time if we get too deep into that. But Aubameyang is a weird one in that I think it was both the right thing for Arsenal to do, but also the wrong thing for Arsenal to do. So the reason I think it's the right thing for them to do is because 
A, he was never going to play again. Uh, Mikel Arteta had made that pretty clear. He hadn't invited him on the trip to Dubai. He hadn't involved him since stripping of the captaincy last month for disciplinary breaches. Um, it was pretty obvious that he wasn't going to make a comeback. We've seen this with Ozil. We've seen this with Benduzi. Arteta's got previous, and I think, you know, that appeared to be the sort of the deal was done on that front. But I also think from a tactical perspective, I don't think Aubameyang was the, the right fit. And I think Arsenal needed a new centre forward because he wasn't going to play on the left wing because Gabriel Martinelli's been so good there. Emil Smith-Rowe's been so good there. Even Nicola Pepe, when he's gone over to that side, has been pretty good. Whereas Aubameyang, for me, doesn't fit on that left wing anymore as much as he did when he first came in. Then you move him in the middle, doesn't quite work again because he doesn't really drop deep. He's someone who looks to go in behind and turn on the shoulder of the defender and use that pace. And listen, I don't think um, dropping deep is his strength. And I think asking him to do that when he's a a world-class penalty box striker is kind of a waste of his talent. Obviously, he's not got the same raises at Barcelona, but um, I think that was a fantastic opportunity for Arsenal. And I think they had to do it. But at the same time, having done it, then they had to replace him because if we're looking at Lacazette and Nketiah as the only strikers going forward for the rest of the season, that's a real problem. They've got between them three goals in uh, the Premier League this season, which is a pretty pathetic contribution so far to the team when you consider how many uh, other players have been really nailing things down. Emil Smith-Rowe has been fantastic in front of the goal. Those kind of guys, they've stepped up. The centre-forwards have not so far. So, yeah, it was it was a risk. It's certainly a risk, and it means that as Arsenal push for the top four, um, Every time Aubameyang scores a goal at Barcelona, we're going to be having the conversation of, oh, well, why did Arsenal let him go? And every time Arsenal have a, an off day in front of goal, the same conversation is what we'll be having. So, um, yeah, it was it was the right thing to do. Just the fact that they didn't replace him meant that it was also probably the wrong thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's really complicated because I kind of agree. I think given where the situation was at, I think it was the right thing to do. It had to be done. But by the same token, I'm really not going to enjoy the next few months of, of uh, you know, every time something doesn't necessarily go to plan and you see maybe a Bamiyang scoring a few goals at Barcelona. It's just going to be really painful to sort of have that, that shadow cast over our, our, the remainder of the season. I mean, you know, a lot of people have kind of gone about uh, on the Bamiyang business in saying that you know, if Arsenal Arsenal were in for a striker and Aubameyang was was available on loan, then he's the, exactly the kind of striker that they'd be looking to do a deal for. And I, and I sort of do, I disagree with that because I think, you know, on paper he's an excellent goal scorer and has done very well for us in the past. But I think clearly we're moving away from, you know, sort of tailoring our game to getting the most out of Aubameyang. And I I think there has been a kind of breakdown of not just relations between him and. Mikel Arteta, uh, which he made quite clear in his his press conference for Barcelona. But, you know, a breakdown in terms of like where he, you know, there were flashes of it where he fitted in with with the players around him. But, you know, he's never quite managed to um, to combine well with Gabriel Martinelli, who's emerged over the last few weeks, few months, mainly, you know, in sort of Aubameyang's absence, um, which I think was quite clear even when Martinelli first broke through, he had a spell in the team. And I think Aubameyang was suspended. So, you know, it, it did seem like he was slowly being ousted from the side. I just think, yeah, when you don't sign a replacement, even though he wasn't going to play anyway, it's really hard to kind of, um, the club leave themselves open to a lot of judgment and um, cynicism, I think, if things don't go 
sort of near to perfect come the rest of the season. I mean, if, if Arsenal don't finish in the top four, I think, which, which I don't think anyone was expecting really, I think that people will say, well, you shouldn't have let Aubameyang go or rather maybe it will turn to you should have signed a replacement. And maybe that's more of a realistic criticism to have that you should have, if you're going to let someone go like that, regardless of whether he's going to play, you need to sign a replacement. But, you know, it's a sad thing. I, I felt quite sad. I, I could tell even, you know, I, I think he was clearly upset about things, whether he's behaved badly or not you know obviously in Arteta's books he has and we still don't know the full extent of things if there is one but it it was sad to see him you know in Barcelona and and kind of not his Instagram post saying that he didn't have a chance to say goodbye and we know, know that he was relatively popular with a lot of the young players so yeah I, my feelings are, are conflicted I think I'm very on board with the project and moving away from players on big wages and and kind of doing things that are in the benefit of the team and the club as opposed to individuals but at the same time it's just like he was you know he he's kept Arsenal afloat kind of single-handedly for the last couple of years really you know you think back to the FA Cup and those brilliant moments and so I I feel sad I feel conflicted and I feel like such a shame that this has gone the way it has but at the same time it's important to try and reorientate the focus onto we've got a good team let's you know we've got a young project going here let's try and you know with time maybe these wounds will heal but you know that's sort of where I'm I'm at because I don't know if you had anything else to add on Aubameyang um no I think I think what you're the points you're raising about him being an excellent forward are top notch and I agree 100% and I think that's kind of been forgotten in this conversation, I think a lot of people have just immediately gone, well, he's not scored as much this season, therefore he's in instantly uh, crap, which I don't think is fair. I think we, we, should, we shouldn't, I think it's possible to simultaneously accept that for those first two and a half seasons, Aubameyang was electric at Arsenal. And like you say, uh, carried them to Europa League final, uh, FA Cup final, Community Shield. And things just sort of didn't work out after it. And I think a lot of people have drawn false equivalences with the, the contract extension. Personally, for me, it wasn't the same thing. I don't think it was the same as when Ozil signed his contract and then there was a clear drop-off. I think Aubameyang's work rate never seemed to drop. If anything, this season it was higher than it's ever been. It was just those, um, I guess, infringements on what Mikel Arteta deems to be his non-negotiables. And yeah, that's, that's it's a sad, sad way for it to end for someone who I think is was going into the season probably one of the most universally popular players in the Arsenal squad. And mm. now he doesn't get that chance to say goodbye, like he said in his Instagram. But um, yeah, it's a shame for him. Yeah, and it's crazy. You know, we've sort of, or at least a lot of Arsenal fans have been kind of demanding for the club to be more ruthless, oh. having having turned into, you know, what's the what's the name that they give it? The, the London Colney Crèche or something like that. And <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, we, we, we started to turn a bit more ruthless in some regards. But this, I think, for a lot of people, was was almost too ruthless. And you know, I was listening to um, Ian Wright on his on his podcast on Ringer FC, and he was reminding everyone about you know when Aubameyang signed the new contract, and there was such a you know he'd scored in the previous two years, twenty nine goals, thirty one goals. He just won us the FA Cup, pretty much single handedly. He could have you know he had offers from Chelsea and probably Barcelona and Inter Milan at the time, and and. Arteta himself was was pivotal in convincing him to stay at the club and you know he wanted to create a legacy and he I think he was not many goals off from you know joining the Centurions in terms of goals scored for Arsenal and 
it is crazy to think how quickly it sort of all unraveled because, you know, uh, I think it was just after it was like October or even early November or something that, you know, Arteta was praising Aubameyang, even though he wasn't in the best of form for, you know, the way that he was, was behaving and, and um, applying himself. And then another, you know, disciplinary breach. And then it all seemed to unfold. And I don't know, I, I think maybe more will come, come to light over time, but, you know, there's been plenty written about and spoken yeah. about, so I don't want to sort of dwell too much on it. Um, One for the autobiographies, I think. Yeah, exactly. And maybe for the, uh, for, you know, the huge... The documentary. Oh, yeah. mate, the documentary is... I mean, I wonder how much they'll be able to go into this sort of thing, but I am I'm very, very excited to see mm. how they how they document it all. And I'm sure Aubameyang probably would have been a big part of the sort of camaraderie on the, on the documentary because we know he's a very fun guy and, like... You know, enjoys the banter and he's a happy, smiley guy. So he'll, I'm sure he was probably the intention was to feature him quite heavily initially, but I wonder how that changes things anyway. Yeah. The last thing on that, I think there is a case of saving quite a lot of money. I think it's becoming more, more understood, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we will be paying him a sort of sum of money until the end of the season and then, you know, save basically a year of wages because he has, I think, 18 months left or did have 18 months left on his deal. I mean, initially reports were suggesting it was like, you know, upwards to 25, 27 million pounds saved. And now it's saying, you know, around 7 million might have been paid to him this season. Did did you have a sort of idea of the uh, the figures or, or how it's worked, the deal? So the, the information I've had is that, I've heard is that they're going to um, sort of split the wages with Barcelona until the end of the season, pay them in instalments and then sort of he'll, be able he'll be sort of taken away from the Arsenal wage bill and that won't be a problem anymore I think those 20-25 million figures were sort of maybe a simplistic overview of how much he was due mm. um, until the end of the season but obviously that's not quite how uh, contract terminations work and I think mm. um, yeah maybe maybe a little optimistic to suggest Arsenal saved 25 million but um, I think they've, they've they've saved a considerable chunk and hopefully I think we're all we're all quite positive on the fact that maybe they'll be able to use that in the summer to going and getting uh, an even better striker than Bamia. And just to conclude, I mean, I think, you know, my 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 favourite memory of Bamia, I think, has got to be that that FA Cup final. You know, those two goals against Chelsea, even though there were no fans in the stadium and I was watching, I remember I just got to my new flat in Edinburgh and I was watching with my two mates who are United fans and you know, we went 1-0 down and then we equalised and then Aubameyang scored that brilliant goal and there's a brilliant sort of moment where you hear Jorginho going, oh, zoo, when he sort of like takes it past him. And I think that's sort of my, the memory that will that will live on in my mind. Um, did you have just one, like one particularly fond memory of Aubameyang? Mine's the 4-2 the North London derby where he scores an incredible goal from the edge of the box to make it 2-2. I think that's just... Yeah. That's such a good goal in such a big game. And people criticised him for not being a big game player, which I always found ridiculous because he was one of those guys who, until recently at least, he seemed to never really get affected in terms of confidence. He'd miss, he'd miss a lot of chances for someone who scored as many goals as he did. Mm. He missed a lot of big chances and he just bounced back. And I think in that Man City semi-final, obviously he missed a massive chance and then went and scored almost a minute later for a much more difficult chance. So that, that goal against Spurs, and obviously I think that's maybe sort of improved by the result that went on to happen afterwards but it was it was, it was it was such an amazing goal and such an amazing occasion I mean the issue of the captaincy uh I think was obviously large in in contributing towards his sort of downfall and and um you know now he's he's left the club but 
I mean, do you think he maybe was burdened by the captaincy and, and perhaps these actions, these discrepancies, not discrepancies, these disciplinary breaches were perhaps judged more intensely because of the fact that he was captain? I think, you know, it's logical to suggest they would be. But do you think that maybe the captaincy in a way was sort of uh, an underlying factor that, that maybe caused, indirectly caused this kind of uh, fallout in a way? Yeah, I think um, if Arteta had taken over uh, before all the Granite Jacker stuff that went down, that led to Aubameyang getting the captaincy, I don't think Aubameyang would have been the captain. I think he wouldn't he wouldn't have been first choice. Probably would have done what we've, we've seen now, where they didn't pick a captain and then pick someone a bit more long-term at the end of the season. Um, I think he was held to a higher standard, and I think that's right, because he's one of the more senior professionals, and it's a really young team, and Mikel Arteta is very big on standards and non-negotiables, and if the captain seems to be falling foul of them, then you can't really then go and ask someone like a Pakaya Saka and a Mill Smith Rowe to mm. be accepting them too. So yes, I think he was held to a higher standard than everyone else, but I think that comes with the pressure of wearing the captain's armband. And I was having a conversation with someone earlier who said that when he goes to Barcelona with the likes of PK um, Busquets already in the dressing room, those big characters who Arsenal didn't really have when he came in and arguably still don't have now, um, they'll be able to tell him if he's stepping out of line mate you know get get your shit together and mm. i think that's that's something that he needs i think he needs a character like that in the dressing room because he's an elite level goal scorer and if he can focus on just doing that then for me that is where he is at his best when you ask him to do all the extra responsibilities that come with being a captain in terms of leading the team it's not really his thing it never has been his team thing he's always been very good at working with young players and encouraging them and empowering them but in terms of providing leadership and a, a role model and example to follow i don't think he was ever that guy. And I, I sympathise with Arteta because he couldn't come in and take the captain's armband off the top striker. He couldn't do it once he'd given him the contract extension. He couldn't do it this summer. Um, yeah, so it, it had to happen. And it'll be mm. interesting to see who he goes for next. I think it's, it's it's from what I've heard and what I've seen, it looks like it'll be Kieran Tierney, but um, we'll, we'll see. Well, there was a moment in the Burnley game, wasn't there? I think when Thomas Partey came on for... Uh, no, not the Burnley the game, Liverpool sorry. Game. In the Liverpool yeah. game, yeah. Uh, he obviously was suspended for the Burnley game. Uh, but <laughs> I think Xhaka or Lacazette were taken, I think Lacazette was taken off and or someone and Partey came on and then he sort of was holding the captain's armband for about five minutes and then finally sort of gave it to Tierney. And, and I hadn't seen Kieran Tierney put on the armband for a while and I felt like maybe, you know, that reflected where it might end up going if they sort of move away from this, you know, leadership group, which I think mm. inevitably at some point they'll have to, kind of solidify who's the the first choice captain but yeah I think that point on setting an example for the young players and especially these you know Martinelli and Saka and Smith Rowe all these really kind of like exciting uh explosive attacking players who sort of you've got to set the right example let's move on to the rest of the transfer window I mean we didn't get the striker that we wanted Dusan Vlahovic I think was pursued heavily and in the end was always going to end up at Juventus and we weren't willing to pay the release clause at least in the January window for Alexandre Isak because I think that's something you know 90 million euros or something like that and then Donut Calvert-Lewin Frank Lampard obviously taking over I think Calvert-Lewin might be uh, quite important to his plans and then Jonathan David I think was another sort of first choice target I mean, none of those were really that likely, I think, in, in January, were they? No, I think Vlajevic was probably the most likely of the lot. Um, 
just because he had 18 months left on his deal and therefore was available. I don't think Alexander Isak was ever available just because of that release clause. And why would Real Sociedad sell their most important player midway through the season? I totally get it from their perspective. And if Arsenal weren't willing to come through that £75 million release clause, reported £75 million release clause, then why should they sell? And I think that's fair enough. Same with DCL. Why would Everton sell in mid-season? This is the problem with the, the January window. Players who a team like Arsenal are going to want nine times out of 10 are going to be the best players at another club. So it's quite rare that those teams will be willing to sell their players midway through the season. Obviously, mm. it was an exceptional circumstance due to the contract, but we reported, I think Chris reported, uh, Chris Wheatley, sorry, at London reported very early that Vlaivich's uh, intention was always to stay in Italy, which is a shame because he is going to be a world-class striker and uh, it's going to be one where I think Arsenal fans are going to sort of have a lot of tears watching Juventus games because it's going to be pretty brutal. Yeah, it's going to be one of those, you can add it to the long list of whether it was likely to happen or not, you know, list of players that Arsenal nearly signed and and um, yeah, yeah he, he does look like a serious forward and something that we've been lacking, you know, the presence up front, the goal scoring ability, the, the kind of the physicality and yeah, it's a shame, but I think it was never really that realistic. But I think I was encouraged by the fact that I think Arsenal really did make a big effort to try and try and tempt him into a move, um, or it appeared so. Whether that was was maybe uh, reported more from the Fiorentina side to sort of galvanise interest or concrete offers from Juventus, we're not sure. But it, it did appear that we did give it a go. So for that, you know, I guess it's promising to see the sort of forward that we might be interested in come the summer. I mean, a lot of Arsenal fans will be upset that we didn't get a player like that. But I think, as we've just said, it's maybe not realistic to expect elite forwards to to move mid-season from clubs, you know, when we're not guaranteed Champions League or even European football. And a lot of these players are playing for teams who are still, you know, in the race for European football in in, to, in the top European league. So could we have not maybe gone for a sort of more second choice option? I think that's what some people have started to think about in terms of cover, in terms of giving a different option to Alex Lacazette and Eddie Nketiah, both of whom's contracts are running out in the summer. Flo Balogun went out on loan to Middlesbrough. It, it does seem like might there not have been someone who could have offered a bit more than maybe Eddie and Katia or a nice alternative to Lacazette? It's tricky because I don't think they could have been certain whether Aubameyang was going to leave or not. And if you've got Aubameyang in the squad, even if it doesn't seem like he's going to be playing, it's difficult to then bring in another striker on top of that. And um, what I would say is how, how does that work? Do you bring them in on loan? Do you bring them in on a five-year contract? Do you bring them in on a two-year contract? Do you bring, I mean, it's, it's difficult and it's a difficult sell and, yeah, I think some Raul de Tomas was linked and um, that's maybe that sort of calibre of player that you're looking at in terms of maybe not the uh, the um, top, top level, but the, just slightly below. But even a player like that, um, uh, Espanyol wanted 70 odd million for him. Teams are very savvy in the transfer market now. You very rarely find bargains these days. I think that's what makes the business Arsenal did in the summer so remarkable, obviously players like Ben White cost a lot of money but uh, if you look at like I don't know an Aaron Ramsdale a lot of money but now looking like a bargain um, for me Martin Odegaard is an absolute bargain someone like a Laconga, like there's not that many deals out there that can be mm. sort of the cheap second choice striker maybe you're looking at someone who's a bit younger to come in 
But again, that that kind of deal didn't really seem to be out there. I, I appreciate the whole, could we not um, proceed a second choice? I think that's a, a fair argument, but I don't really see who was out there. In seasons gone by, when Arsenal were pushing for the top of the league, remember that, how long ago that was with Olivier Giroud as their only striker. There was like players like Denver Ball or Loic Remy, those kind of guys going around mid-table in the Premier League. There's not really anyone like that anymore. You can't really go out and just get a good striker for £10 million like you could maybe five, six years ago. It just doesn't happen. So I really understand that argument. And listen, the the sort of the talent ID guys at Arsenal paid a lot of money and maybe they should have been able to, to get that one over the line. But if it wasn't out there, then I think Arsenal did the right thing by just sticking with what they've got. I agree. Uh, I'm definitely of that side of things where I'm willing to trust the club. Uh, a lot of people will say, you're crazy. Like, how can we trust the club after, <laughs> you know, they've literally not capitalised on such a big opportunity to maybe propel them into the top four. But I think also... I am willing to, yeah, as I said, trust. And I take a bit of encouragement in the fact, sorry, that, you know, our top four rivals, so to speak. I mean, it's great. We're, we're in the top four race. I mean, it's, that's been a while. West Ham have struggled big time to sort of ever get an adequate backup for Mikel Antonio. They didn't strengthen this window. Manchester United, I mean, they didn't have to strengthen, I don't think, but they let quite a few senior senior players go on loan or, uh, you know, the likes of Anthony Martial and Donny van der Beek. Spurs missed out on two of their primary targets, strengthened in the end by Fabio Paterucci going back to Juventus and signing Kulovevsky and uh, Leandro Bentancur. I don't think I got his first name right, but, you know, we'll, we'll let Rodrigo. it. Rodrigo. Rodrigo. <laughs> Leandro. <laughs> but, you know, I... I I'm not like too worried by those signings from Spurs. And it just, I think, shows that those kind of options, especially mid-season, are not that attainable in terms of someone who can come in, make an impact straight away. You know, you're not risking too much money. You know, you're not forced into anything that you don't want to do. So I, I agree with you that I understand it a bit more. I just, I, I fear, you know, I don't even fear it that much because I, I think we are, this group of players is largely what's got us to where we are. And if we can maintain everyone's fitness, I think the only issue is if, if someone forward positions picks up an injury, then, you know, I know you've got Nicola Pepe back from uh, the Africa Cup of Nations and stuff, but it does look quite, quite thin up there. So I can understand where a lot of people are coming from, but at the same time, I'm, I'm more than willing to try and get through to the summer and then reassess. And, you know, we'll see what happens with Lacazette and Nketiah. It looks as if Leon are putting in there, putting in the groundwork to sign Lacazette on a free in the summer. And it looks as if Eddie and Katia. I mean, that's a strange one, Eddie and Katia, because I think it looked as if at one point that Newcastle were going to sign him uh, close to deadline day. It never quite materialised. What do you make of just the strikers we've got on board at the moment and sort of where you envision us going come the summer? I really like Lacazette. I think if uh, if he was around for one more year, just bringing in that top level striker in the summer with Lacazette as backup, he seems like a guy who is such a professional that he would be happy to do that. He's a great influence on the squad as well. And he's not happy with sitting on the bench, but he, he can do it. Uh, someone like an Eddie, I think, is not good enough for Arsenal. It's really sad to say because you don't want to talk badly of an academy product, but I think we've always had the question mark about Eddie. And even when he's been doing well in the Carabao Cup, everyone's always sort of tainted that um, praise with sort of, yeah, but it's Carabao Cup opposition. And whenever he's been given the chance in the Premier League, he's, he's never really 
done it for me. So I think if Arsenal could have got uh, a fee for Eddie and Ketter in, in this January transfer window, and if a Bamiang situation hadn't happened, um, Eddie would have been gone. I think Arsenal would have would have taken the money and mm. said thank you very much to Newcastle. Here's someone to take him off our hands for a little bit of money, and they'd have been all over that. So, yeah, I think Arsenal have sort of circumstances forced their hand a bit, and going into the summer, uh, well, going into possibly next season with Flo Balogun as the only centre forward in the entire club is a is a risk for sure, and it means that they're going to have to do business, and it means that when they go out, every other team, if you're Real Sociedad and you're at the negotiation table, they're quite rightly saying, well, we know you need a striker desperately and you want Alexander Isak, but we're not going to give him to you for cheap because we know your situation. And Arsenal have weakened their hands in that front um, somewhat self-inflictedly. Mm. But, um, we'll, we'll have to see in the summer who they can bring in. I'm hoping they'll be able to surprise us with someone who we've never really heard of because as far as I'm concerned, none of the guys they've uh, they've they've made able to sort of link with so far are quite the finished article yet for how much they definitely cost. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I guess it is exciting because we will be signing a, you know, proper sense forward in the summer. So that's one to keep an eye on. Just in terms of the rest of the rest of the business that the club did, there are a lot of outgoings. And again, a lot of people have it's very easy to kind of get drawn into, oh, no signings, six outgoings, weakened an already depleted squad. But then you look at the guys who went out. I mean, said Glasnatch, paid to leave or contract terminated, whatever, you know, joined the likes of Mustafi and Socrates and Meza Erzo and Willian. And I mean, that's a conversation for another day that Arsenal need to really, really get a grip and stop getting into these positions when they're paying players to leave or not getting any value from guys who they've paid a lot of money for or, you know, in wages, wage terms. Um, Pablo Marie went to Udinese, uh, Maitland-Niles, which I think a lot of people had an issue with, quite rightly so, because we needed him for January and then we let him go before the, all those games and we were very short. And then Flo Balogun, as we mentioned. Callum Chambers' one was a bit strange. Again, not maybe maximising his financial potential a few months ago when we could have extended his deal and then sold him for a bit more. But all these players really, they barely contributed this season. They were very much on the fringes. They had their chances, you know, in maybe the League Cup or um, the FA Cup first round against, third round against Nottingham Forest and, and were nowhere near the level so it wasn't that surprising from my part. I quite liked the streamlining approach. It just kind of makes it quite clear that there's still a lot of business to do and there's no real wiggle room in terms of the rest of the season because we don't have the squad options. Yeah, what, what I would say about that, though, is that there are only 17 games left of the season. So that's the sort of... the the calculated risk that Arsenal mm. taking, if you like. Um, obviously, getting all those players out, I think, is probably good, except for Maitland-Niles, like you said. Um, I think between them, let's 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 take a quick look. I mean, uh, Pablo Marie, one Premier League start this season, or two Premier League starts this season. Kolasinac, one Premier League start this season. Balogun, one Premier League start this season. Chambers, two. So it's not a lot, basically. These guys weren't really playing before. And I think people get nervous when they see the lack of familiar names on the bench. And obviously with the Burnley game, when the bench was so weak, it was mm. such a such a difficult time uh, for them. But I think, listen, the the one player I would have probably kept is Maitland-Niles. But even then, I would have only kept until the end of January. So I don't think I can individually call out any of these decisions to let any of these players go. I think it's just as a collective, it does look a bit a bit of a risk now. But we'll see. We'll see. And what I'd say on the Chambers one is, um, I think... If Arsenal obviously could 
had known about Aston Villa's interest earlier, they, they would have activated that clause. Mm. They didn't find out about uh, Aston Villa's interest until I think it, was, it moved very quickly. I think it was maybe three, four days before he ended up leaving. So um, that's just one of those sort of things that's, that's, that's unlucky for, for Arsenal in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, I heard about Aston Villa when they signed uh, Danny Ings out of nowhere in the summer. You know, apparently Danny Ings... You know, when he when the interest first came to light, he wasn't allowed to tell anyone. He wasn't even allowed to tell his partner, his family, or anything because Aston Villa operate in a way that you know is so sort of keeping it quiet, keeping uh, media attention away and stuff. So I guess yeah, maybe that was the Chambers dynamic as well. I think also you know you pointed out those games that those minimal minutes and games that the, all of those players played, and you can also kind of even take it further you know those players kind of filled in the gaps at the beginning of the season they played against uh Brentford where we'd had a COVID outbreak against Manchester City where we started with a, a back five of I think you know holding Chambers Cedric Kolasinac uh, maybe Tierney was in there as well which yeah. is you know not not great so these guys and Pablo Marie as well you know you have that torrid time against Romelu Lukaku in the game against Chelsea at the Emirates so I think these guys only, they wouldn't have even played if we had a fully fit squad, you know, that Gabriel was injured and and Ben White had COVID and, you know, these guys filled in and they weren't up to the level, which also begs the question, you know, why was Pablo Marie signed if he wasn't up to the level? But, you know, maybe it was a short-term fix, but I think hopefully we're moving away from those short-term fixes. And like you, I don't mind about these players leaving because I think, it again, it means we need a big summer especially if we're going to try and return to European football. We need the squad numbers up and hopefully we can sign players of quality and with a sort of future path as opposed to, yeah, finding the easy option. That transfer window has passed and Arsenal are, as we spoke about just before going on to the podcast, they're on their way back from Dubai as we speak. It looks like they've had a great time at the training camp. I don't know if you've been keeping up with that. I mean, I'm sure you have. What are your impressions in terms of like what, what's been going on there and and how maybe beneficial it might be for the rest of the season? Yeah, yeah it looks like they've had a lovely time, to be fair, and hopefully they've recharged their, their batteries. I think you compare it to the last trip to Dubai where Guendouzi had that falling out with Arteta, swinging his, his shirt around above his head, all that kind of stuff. Um I don't think there's any real characters like that in the Arsenal team right now anymore from what we know anyway and from speaking to them and sort of hearing from them and seeing what they're like on social media. Everyone seems to be sort of, it seems to be a lot of good eggs in this Arsenal dressing room and a lot of, you know, very decent professionals, which is what you need if you want a team to get to the very top. I don't think there's too many people who are going to go out and break the rules, who are going to push the boundaries. I think people are generally quite respectful and I think that's that's credit to Arteta because he's been very, very big on the whole culture side of Arsenal Football Club and I think that's that's been that's been really positive and it means that these past is it 10 days they've been out there um might be less but um it's gone really smoothly and it looks like they spent a lot of time on the training ground it looks like they spent a lot of time in the sun getting massages just taking their mind away from how awful January was which is is important and as, as much as physically obviously resting is key mentally just switching off from the ridiculousness of being a Premier League footballer and being able to sort of step away from being in London where everything is pretty full on most of the time so just going out to Dubai where you're, you're in the sun you're, you're chilling all the time I think that's 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 massive and I think it will hopefully serve Arsenal in good stead we'll see obviously the Wolves game will be the best barometer of that but it'll be yeah it'll be it'll be it'll be good for them I think yeah I think also to be maybe a bit further further away and removed from 
the transfer window shenanigans and, and yes. the Aubameyang situation. I think, you know, all I'd hope is, and we've seen a few players engage with Aubameyang, you know, Bukayo Saka, I think just about half an hour ago, something shared a farewell message and, and with photos and stuff. So it, it does seem as if, I mean, my impression is that the players haven't been too adversely affected by this because there was a worry initially, you know, Aubameyang's, you know, very tight with say Alex Lacazette and Nicola Pepe and, you know, gets on well with Saka and, and would play as sort of, not be all right with this decision but it looks as if it hasn't affected them and and yet they're still able to you know pay their respects and and sort of bid him farewell via social media and stuff so it looks as if that situation has been managed quite well in terms of the squad dynamic i do hope that you know they they've had a clear explanation given to them just in terms of being updated with what's been going on and stuff because we wouldn't want anything kind of festering or or a lack of clarity but yeah, I think from what we've heard, um, I think uh, Flo Balligan was asked about it when he moved to Middlesbrough and it, he just said that, that they were informed of the decision and then they had to get on with it. I think that's just the way it goes for professional mm. football. I don't think they really get um, that many questions uh, sort of of the manager's decision. If it's, if it's, if they don't like it, then, then tough, they kind of have to, they have to deal with it. And that's just, that's just the way of it right now. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I think, yeah, it's good to see like Nicola Pepe and, and Thomas Partey back with the group. We know that Nicola Pepe, I mean, we haven't seen much of him this season, but he's tended to be a bit more of a second half of the season player. And I think, you know, we're going to need his his potential goal threat and, and you know, some minutes from him in the second half of the season, because even though we're not in any other competitions, to demand quite a lot on these young players starting each and every game and, and making the difference, I think he is someone who could make a difference, albeit not that consistently so I'm looking forward to see that happening and yeah you mentioned the Wolves game I mean a week today we'll be gearing up for for the Wolves game I don't know if you'll be uh you'll be covering the game I, I yeah. you will be you'll be having your hot yeah, chocolate on there. the train up <laughs> yes yeah hopeful hot chocolate uh with some actual milk on this on this way veganuary is over for me I was doing veganuary for listeners who don't know oh. uh, who don't follow my Twitter account, which I assume is most of you. You're probably right not to follow me. But um, yeah, I was having oat milk on my, my lattes last month and Arsenal didn't win a game. So coincidence? I think not. I think you think so? The milk's going to bring us back to victory, I hope. Oh, very interesting. No, I love that. I mean, I I'm, <laughs> I'm, I tend to sort of stick to a more plant-based diet, but I love oat right. milk. I think oat milk's great. Yeah, uh, I like it. It's just I've got to sacrifice myself for the team. Like, it's, yeah. you know, someone's got to, someone's got to do this to make sure Arsenal win some games again. It's it's been tough. Absolutely. I mean, I think, and also, you know, going to going to Molyneux, I think, yeah, you, you get you get yourself some normal milk in that in that hot chocolate because we. <laughs> I actually hadn't realised, but I was just thinking about like Wolves and last season we lost both games against them. And I was thinking back to it and obviously in the first home game, there was the horrendous incident with Raul Jimenez. And I think that game was kind of adversely affected, but at the same time, you know, we were very much in that period of of playing dreadfully at home and, and we were in that tough patch before Christmas. And then the second game, I mean, it was, I remembered recording a podcast about it because the first half we played really, really well. Um, Nicola Pepe, as you say, was playing off the left, which I was, I wanted to see a bit more of, to be honest. I mean, I know we've got options there now, but he was, he was dangerous in a way that, you know, he was more direct on that left-hand side and 
on the right, he he's always just far too close to the touchline and and kind of is, gets pushed out and loses the ball. And it's quite predictable, at least on the left. He kind of, I don't know, provides a bit more of a direct threat is the way that I saw it. But he scored a brilliant goal and we were 1-0 up. And then right at the end of the first half, <laughs> David Luiz got sent off for something that was within the rules of the game, a red card, I think, but it felt very harsh because it was unintentional. And then they equalised from the resulting penalty, I want to say, or free kick maybe. And then Jao Moutinho scored a, scored a screamer just before the restart. And then Bernd Leno had a... I forgot about this. Bernd Leno had a moment of madness and came out and handballed. So he finished the game with nine, nine men, which is yeah. sort of in keeping with what's been going on recently in terms of getting red cards. But... I'd forgotten about that, that that was last year. So, I mean, we've got to put that right because we we picked up zero points against Wolves last yeah. year and we've got them twice in less than a month, I think. Um, yeah, that was games. one of the first games I ended up covering in person for football at London because of COVID. You didn't get to, get to go as many games last season, but my God, what a crazy game that was. Uh, freezing cold. It was like one degree, absolutely pouring down with rain for the entirety of the 90 minutes and... Yeah, it was miserable. Um, Arsenal start. They started so well in that game, and they were the first half was fantastic. And I think I just composed a tweet saying the only thing Arsenal will regret in this half is not having scored more than one goal. And then, yeah, the David Luiz decision happened, which I think is uh, one of the one of the worst refereeing decisions I've seen. I mean, technically within the rules, but listen, mm. the rule, the, the laws, and us in that case, I think that's that's just unbelievable. And uh, I think. <laughs> Without you sort of opening up old, old wounds, I'm getting triggered by it. But uh, I remember Jan Bednarek did exactly the same thing on the same night. His red card got overturned. Uh, David Luiz's didn't. So just one of those things. If you're into media conspiracies, uh, sorry, refereeing conspiracies. Yeah. It's not media conspiracies. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> but um, yeah, Wolves, uh, Wolves were a very tough team because they've, they've sort of silently gone under the radar. Um and become a very decent side in the Brunelage. They don't concede many goals. They don't score many either, but they, they don't concede many at all. And that's maybe a legacy of Nuno, maybe that Portuguese influence. I think Portuguese coaches tend to be a bit more sort of focused on stopping the opposition rather than uh, trying to maybe play their own football all the time. And listen, it's 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 worked really well for them. And they're, they are within a chance of getting top seven, top six, even if things go really well for them and two teams fall away. So... They're going to be a difficult opponent, and yeah, twice within one month is is unusual, and we'll we'll see how that goes. But it's 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 a it's a tricky one, and it's a tricky one to get back to. But if Arsenal want to come top four, these are the kind of games you have to win. You can't be you can't really be drawing, especially when you drop points against Burnley. Other teams have games in hand. All that stuff has to be factored into account, and I think it's 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 a must win for Arsenal. I hate using that term because mm, then when Arsenal it, don't win, it is though. social media meltdown is so much more intense but it kind of feels like a must win it fit yeah I, it feels like for me i mean a must win but in the way that in my head that translates to in real terms like good performance don't lose the game and then you should be all right and and mm. and win but i think on so many levels we just talked about the the need to kind of put put last year's wrongs right in the same way that I felt when Aston Villa came to the Emirates earlier in the season I was desperate to win that game because of mm. you know the way that they beat us twice last year and we did beat them and I think the Wolves game is a good kind of uh, measuring stick as to where we might have improved playing against these teams who are quite good and, and defensively solid but as we saw against Burnley we're, we're still we can struggle still so there's that level on it second level is getting a win because we drew against Burnley lost to 
City. I know those are the only two games that we sort of had in the last month or since the turn of the year. We need to we need to win because Spurs and United have been winning around us. And then on a third level, I think it's, you know, it's an away game against a team who are sort of, in my mind, an equivalent to quite a, you know, a good team. And we struggled against Everton. We struggled against Manchester United. They were pretty abject, mainly, largely abject performances and, and, and poor results. But, you know, we, we won our last two away games, I think, against uh, Norwich and Leeds quite emphatically. And so it would be good to see the progress, the signs of progress that we saw in January, or at least December, not January, kind of come to fruition again. And then on the other and on the other hand, it's like, given that's what's going on in this transfer window and with Aubameyang leaving, you know, you, you've got to hit the ground running because it's, it's hard because you don't, the, the environment around the club isn't, you know, the most important thing in terms of determining how the team performs. But to maintain this kind of positive feeling that is still, I think, intact with the team and the club and the manager and the players to to continue to perform well and get a win against Wolves would be massive for that. And if we weren't to, weren't to do that, then I think, yeah, I, I just don't even want to think about the kind of things that would come up and the and the negative sentiment relating to Aubameyang and why didn't we sign this and that and all the rest of it. So I think it's just so important we play well and a, a win would be lovely, but. Did you have anything else to add on the Wolves game just before we look ahead to, you know, the final stretch of the season? Not really. Um, I think you've covered it pretty well. I think that's, uh, yeah, like we said, a big, big, big win for top four if they can get it. And it's the kind of game that I think Man U will struggle to win. I think I think Spurs will struggle to win. Mm. West Ham will struggle to win. So if Arsenal can win it, then that's three points gained over their rivals and that's going to be massive. Yeah, I think Man United earlier in the season, they they deserve to lose. I think they managed to scrape a 1-0 somehow. Yeah. You mentioned before, 17 games, all in the Premier League. No other distractions, no other cup competitions, no excuses, really. We've, we've sort of made our bed. We're going to give it a real good go. I, I hope that the team are kind of really, the Dubai trips galvanise them and there's kind of this fighting spirit of, you know, it's a tight-knit group. This is all on you guys, like... You know, we've put our trust in these you young players to deliver European football back to Arsenal and then we get to the summer and you're going to be rewarded and then you have European football. So I really hope that the group has really sort of, you know, as it has been showing, becoming closer and and more cohesive. And um, I really hope that the fans can get on board with that as well. How do you see, just before we finish up for today, how do you see sort of the rest of the season panning out? I know it's not an easy question or a fair one to ask you, but um, <laughs> what are your feelings? Do you feel positive going into the final 17 games? Um, I think given what we've seen in the first half of the season, not just from Arsenal, but from the teams around them, it's difficult not to feel like they have a good chance still of getting top four. We'll have to see how much of... Um, an impact this lack of striking depth really has on the side I think if it turns out to be as catastrophic as some people think it might be then listen that's a that's a real issue but um, I think if it if it turns out to to not be as bad as it, it could be which I personally think will be the case then I think Arsenal will be okay if they can keep Alexander Lacazette fit and avoid having to start Eddie Nketiah regularly in Premier League games and that sounds a bit harsh but it's, it's I just I just don't think that I, I think Aside from not being able to score goals, he makes the team around him worse because he doesn't bring that link-up play that Lacazette offers, which is obviously the benefit to having Lacazette in the team and his main strength. So yeah, it's um it's it's gonna be it's gonna be tricky for us to get top four, but I would at this point still say that their their chances are still still pretty decent. Yeah, and I think 
it's always useful to maintain a level of realistic expectation and going mm. into this season what we wanted to see was return to European football and be closer to I mean we only finished I think it was five points off top four last season but I think everyone would agree that we were never really in with a chance we weren't really in the race whereas this season so far I mean after the tough start we've sort of maintained that level of competitiveness and that's all I want to see I want us to maintain that I want to return to European football come the summer see the levels of performances continuing the level that they've been which is relatively high and I think if that happens then that's enough and I think if the top four were to happen then that would be a major bonus and sort of testament to Arteta and, and the players for delivering that but I don't think it's the be all and end all and I think the club have shown in this window that it's more than just getting into the Champions League straight away I think it's more managing this squad and, and club a bit more carefully having not been cared for properly over the last five ten years or something like that so I'm all for the eternal optimist getting behind it and, and seeing how well it might go and and getting behind these young players and a small tight-knit group and I'm excited to see these these players play together week in week out how they develop and when it sort of gets to crunch time at least in the league you know try try again against some of the bigger sides see how they fare and yeah I'm I'm excited to see football come back it's been ages now so yeah I'm looking forward to next Thursday and the rest of the season but Kyle I'm gonna let you go because I don't want to take up too much of your time but thank you so much for uh, for joining us on the podcast today it's been brilliant chatting and uh, your insight and kind of work that you're doing for football.london and stuff like that is 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 greatly appreciated as is no your worries. appearance on the pod no worries thank you for having me on I'm very glad to very glad to come on yeah enjoyed it so and thank you for all the the nice things about my work very nicely to say so thank you very much oh of course you can find Kai on twitter at kaiakainak97 and be sure to follow all his work covering arsenal over at football.london quick reminder that you can find every episode of that sums it all up on spotify apple podcast google podcast all the rest of it follow the podcast on twitter at that sums it all up and on instagram too that sums it all up pod thanks for listening take care and until next time goodbye that sums it-